This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. French capital and to Roland Garros, basking in late afternoon sunshine. The start of week two and still everything to play for. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. It's lovely to have you with us. My name is Gigi Sam and I'm joined today by two familiar voices on ATP Tennis Radio and Simon Cambers and Matt Brown. And I know, Matt, we should start talking about the tennis, but I have to start by talking about the weather. What you said to me on our way down here to record this, and it's currently, I should let everyone know, it's 3.40 in the afternoon, is, and you're from a hot country. You said, please, can we sit in the shade? <laughs> I did. It is a scorcher. Hottest day of the tournament by some distance. Great to be here again, Gigi. I've got Factor 50 on, if that's anything to go by. And you had a hat as well, and you're completely covered up. It's, yesterday was, was hot, Matt, but today it's reached new heights. It's difficult for spectators. It's difficult for players. And the heat's one thing, but the wind is the other. It's been very windy out on court today as well, which uh, makes it even more difficult. Combine that with the heat. How has your first week been, gentlemen? Who would like to go first? I've loved it. It's been a terrific week. I think it's been one of the best uh, Roland Garros tournaments that I can recall. We've had some absolutely cracking matches, some five-setters, some memorable matches. We're seeing the cream rising to the top. If you look at the top half of that men's draw, um, everyone seated apart from Jan Leonard Struff in the last 16. Uh, you've seen Roger Federer play some sublime tennis, winding back the clock, playing as well as I've seen him play here. He's, you know, it's just brilliant. I know we'll talk more about uh, more about him. So it's been a, a wonderful week, and we've seen some, some real nice touchy moments when I say I mean I'm, the other 37 year old in the draw who's no longer in the draw but he took his kid onto the court Nicholas Mahu after his five set win I mean it brought tears to your eyes those sorts of, I mean it's had everything this, this first week I think on the men's side it seems to be building towards yet another Novak Rafa final with maybe Roger and Vavrinka getting in the way along the way. We're going to start with Roger Federer because I mentioned the time. It's important that I do mention the time because you might be listening to this thinking, why on earth are you talking about this specific person because they're no longer in the tournament? So it's coming up to 3.45 in the afternoon. And just moments ago, Matt Brown, you called on Radio Roland Garros Roger Federer's match point. Yeah, and I just mentioned before that he is playing as well as I've seen him play here. I mean, he literally is. He has not dropped a set. He never faced a break point in his fourth-round match today against a player who had been playing exceptionally well to get to the stage, uh, Leonardo Meyer, 6-2, The great thing, the thing I love about Federer this year, he is 37 and a half. He knows that. He is mixing things up so incredibly well with his serving. Um, he's coming to the net. He's serving and volleying. He's shortening the points. He's doing everything to, I guess, economise his, his, uh, you know, where, where he needs to be. Less than two hours each match. He knows that if he's going to go really, really deep and, and challenge for this title, he's got to have a lot of energy, a lot of petrol on the tank for those business end of the tournament and I think he's timed his run perfectly. He's into week two, he's into the last eight and he's yet to drop a set. Yeah, I mean how many times have we seen this? We've seen Federer steamroll his way through the first week, a lot of times some really big quick wins. He knows, he's so experienced, he knows he can't get embroiled in these four or five setters, the testing ones that will kill him further down the line. The problem for Federer comes when he has three or four easy wins and then the first big test and we've seen in the last year or two, apart from the ones he's won, which obviously (laughs) we have to set aside, 
he has had trouble and as soon as he's come up against somebody big he's come a cropper so we'll we'll see how he gets on in his next one because that's the that's the really big test for people wondering why they can't hear tennis balls being hit because play is underway, because Matt wanted to find some shade, we've come down into the media restaurant so you can hear knives and forks and plates and glasses rather than balls because there's just a little bit of shade. People have finally finished lunch in the French capital coming up to four o'clock in the afternoon and it's just a quieter place to sit. Rafa Nadal has though, Matt, I'm not sure this is going to sound the alarm bells, has dropped a set in his last round to David Goffin. Yeah, and uh, I really wanted to judge Nadal. I've tipped him to win the title after his third round match against Goffin in terms of what, where he's at because he played a couple of you know qualifiers in the first two rounds, won easily. And against Goffin, he was superb for 90% of that match. I, I think Goffin's one of the top 10 players in the world for me on clay. Nadal still managed to beat him, you know, 6-1, 6-3, 4-6, 6-3, and came back really strong in that fourth set. Nadal's playing at an incredibly high level. He, for me, heading into week two, is the favourite for the men's title, just ahead of Novak Djokovic. And interesting, conditions-wise, they're absolutely perfect for Rafa Nadal. So he knows how to play in the wind. He loves it when the sun is on his back. But moving further into week two, the temperature is going to drop quite dramatically. Yeah, the weather, the weather's all over the place in the second week. I mean, and I think this is going to be a key factor because we're going to get to Tuesday, which is the next round. We have Federer and Nadal will be lucky. They'll play their matches that day. Wednesday could be a washout at this stage. Things could change, but Wednesday looks really rough. So Novak Djokovic and that half of the draw may find themselves chasing their tail a little bit in the second week. So the weather will play a big role. How has Rafa Nadal seemed to you through these first few days? Yeah, pretty good. I think you've got to take him at his word. He said that he played magnificently in the first set against uh, Goffin. Goffin, we watched this on, we were commentating on it on the radio, and Goffin was lights out third set. He absolutely, he had 20 winners in the third set, or 17 winners, I think it was. He absolutely went for broke, it all went in. Nadal just kept his, kept his temper, kept his level at the same way, and then just lifted it slightly in the fourth and did a good job. He's done a good job. It's been interesting for him because he's played people he's never played before, uh, four in a row, which is unusual. Um, but the, the tougher challenges start to come as we get further on. And I think he's exactly where he wants to be now. It took him a while in the Claycott season. He got that psychological win over Djokovic in the final in Rome, and he's where he wants to be. It's still tough. A discussion going around Roland Garros, Novak Djokovic, can he, for the second time in his career, it's crazy to think he's trying to do this for a second time, complete the slam, hold on, the, the Nole slam for a second time. I picked him in our ATP Tennis Radio time capsule at the start of the year. I don't think I really looked ahead to this year. I think I was looking back on 2018. Djokovic for the slam, second time around? Of course he can. If it's going to be someone to stop Nadal, it does look like it's Djokovic. He's playing very, very well. Conserving energy like the uh, top three are, him more than anyone actually. Uh, looks very confident. He's peaking for these slams more than he's ever done before. It's just a case of beating Nadal over five sets. I say just. Five sets on, on his favourite court, Philippe Chatrier. The one time Nadal lost to Djokovic was here in 2016 when he was not himself. In 2015, in fact, when he was not himself. You know, can he, uh, can he do it over five sets? It's going to be a, a massive, epic battle. It could be one of those enormously 
incredibly satisfying, exciting battles if they make the final. He can do it, but I think Nadal will stop him. It was interesting listening to Novak Djokovic in his pre-tournament press conference, Matt, talking about preparations and how it does mean more and it is something different. And the further he goes into his career, these are the moments he's training for and these are the titles that he wants to win. Well, we saw that, you know, after the Australian Open, he had a, he had a dip with all due respect to, to tournaments that are not majors. You know, they're big, big, big tournaments, but he didn't quite nail it. And here he is peaking at a Grand Slam again, playing some fantastic tennis. He has not dropped a set yet again. Similar to the day isn't it? Uh, he's played a lucky loser, he's played a qualifier uh, and now he plays an unseated um, Jan Leonard Struff from Germany in what is an incredibly tight top half of the draw. I think Djokovic will be will have a lot, will be really tested over the next uh, few days. I think the likes of Struff, Fanini or Zverev can certainly beat him on their day but I still expect Djokovic to come through, but how much work is the, are the next uh, you know, two or three matches, if he does come through, um, going to take out of him? Because you've got to remember, Dominic Team hasn't played his best tennis yet. He's also in that top half of the draw. If he does play his best tennis, he's also going to be a, a genuine threat for Novak Djokovic in a semi-final. Uh, what about the man? And Matt has touched on this. The only unseeded player in the top half of the draw is Jan Leonard Struff, and that is the player that's going to be taking on Novak Djokovic. And Jan Leonard Struff actually spoke to Seb Lozier and started by discussing how with both of his parents having been tennis coaches a professional career in the game was always on the cards. I was playing soccer uh, when I was young as well but with the time I always play tennis like it's normal if you have a tennis family to to come to the tennis. Uh, for sure it would be something with sport sport because uh, yeah I like to move a lot and uh, have too much energy and not, not uh, I need to yeah give it somewhere. So was your dad your first coach? Yeah, basically my dad and my mom, they were coaching me like uh, I was working a lot with my dad when I was younger. Um, but uh, yeah, always like, I don't know, until what age, like some mid, mid of teenage. Uh, I still practice with him like, uh, but yeah, it's it's nice to have some talk sometimes. And uh, In terms of the German scene, it seems to be thriving at the moment. There's you, Philip Kohlschreiber keeps on winning despite his 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 uh, his age now. I mean, not that he's old, but Misha and then Sasha, Peter Goyovchik. It seems like a good team. We have good players, yeah. Um, we have a lot of fun in Davis Cup together. Um, we played very decent year last year, lost to Spain very close away. And uh, yeah, we have all fun together. And uh Philip is a very good player, you, especially on clay, he's uh, pretty tough. Zasha is doing so great and all the others, like uh, I, I can't name all, but uh, they're doing a good job and um, I hope it's very good for German tennis. For you, getting that win over Sasha in Indian Wells, how important was that for you? Very important for me, like uh, I lost to him four times, I think five already, um, if I count the challenger. and. Uh, yeah, it was not feeling good. Obviously, he's an unbelievable champion. Like uh, he won the Masters in in London end of the year, the Nitto Finals, and uh, yeah, such such good player, such talent, and uh, such hard work he puts in. And for me to be the guy like him, it's yeah, it feels very good. It, it boosts my self confidence and. Uh, yeah, I, if you lose to a guy like four to five times, you don't want to lose again. Yeah? Like every time you, you say, come on, I want to beat him. I want to beat him. I get, want to get better. And it, yeah, finally I could beat him. Another thing that must boost your confidence, you're a doubles 
champion you're, you're winning titles with Ben McLaughlin I think yeah, you're mainly right, yeah. playing with that partnership seems to have come out of nothing yeah. um, presumably that's nice because it gives you two goes at each tournament I mean you're one of the few players who commits to playing a, a lot of doubles and singles do you find it helps you definitely um, I love the doubles and um, sometimes it's tough with uh, yeah fitness but uh, I have a good team like uh, Uwe Liedke my fitness coach is very good so um, I'm very happy and um, yeah I'm very happy that I can play both um, singles doubles. Sometimes it helps my game, like uh, volley game is much better and um, aggressive. Some shots are more aggressive and the service. You always practice like in doubles, like the return. It it helps you for your singles and um, also the singles is helping sometimes in doubles. When you play doubles, some doubles guys, uh, they only focus on doubles and you, you have this uh, hard ground strokes. They, they they struggle sometimes a bit but um, they're doing their job pretty well and uh, yeah I, re I really enjoy playing both like yeah in terms of your singles um, do you set targets for rankings and things like that I mean you're still pretty young yeah basically every time um, I step up into a season or into a tournament I set up goals for me aims I think uh, life without aims is like uh, very boring and uh, you always have to push yourself and um, go for it and uh, yeah obviously it's not working every time but uh, if you're aiming low you, you cannot reach uh, good results I think and uh, you should always aim high but uh, not too high to make uh, tough expectations but always think big and aim high but uh, always used to um, take my aims and my goals f with my team and I keep it for me because I don't want to put some pressure on me like if I say like I want to do that, that, that and uh, it's not working out but uh, I know what I want to do. I do a lot of pressure on myself sometimes because I want to reach the aims but yeah, it's very important for me. Jan Leonard Struff speaking to Seb Lozier. Let's start with Struff, his chances of beating Novak Djokovic because I've seen a fair amount of Struff this year and he's picking up some big scalps. Yeah, he's always been capable of playing well. He's got a massive game, big serve, huge ground strokes, goes for it all the time. This year, they're all going in. So that makes him a massively dangerous competitor. I just think Djokovic will be too strong, too consistent for him, as long as Djokovic is in the right frame of mind, which I'm sure he will be. But on his day, Struff is a, is a huge challenge for anyone because he can take the racket out of their hands. So he could just blow Djokovic off the court, but he'd have to be absolutely perfect. The problem is, if you're not absolutely perfect, you're probably going to lose. There are some mouth-watering matchups in the round of 16. Staying in the top half, Matt, Fabio Fanini, Monte Carlo winner against Sasha Zverev, who's come through another tight five-setter against Dusan Lovic. Yeah, Fanini for me, the way he's playing. I, I've been really impressed with Fanini. I've been fortunate enough to call a couple of his matches. He was very good in the in the first round against Seppi, against Delbonis as well. Yes, he's dropped a set. He's got, come through in four sets. But I just love the way he's finished his matches. And uh, I, I think he'll beat Zverev. Uh, I think possibly, you know, it may go the distance, four or five sets. But I think there's so much confidence that he gained from that win at the Monte Carlo Masters, winning a big tour title like that. Um, he believes he can beat anyone on the surface. The win over Nadal gives him a, a massive confidence too. So, yeah, I'm backing Fanini to get through to a quarterfinal against Novak Djokovic. And also, no one's really talking, Simon, about Fabio Finini. He's just going out there, strutting around the court, picking up the wins and moving on. Exactly the way he likes it. He doesn't want to be talked about. He doesn't want to be talked up. 
He's happy to do his own thing. I agree. I make, I make him favourite to beat Sasha Zverev. I think he's been playing great tennis. The fact that he's just been allowed to do his own thing fits right into his world. If you go behind the scenes at tournaments, you'll find Fabio Fognini strutting around as if he's world number one. You know, <laughs> he may as well be taking his shirt off and walking around strutting his stuff. But he is, he's a, a, a great character. I love watching him play. You've got to remember that when he was 13, 14, he was right up there with Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic as the best juniors of that age. He didn't quite make it through at the same speed as them, but who knows? You know, maybe this could be a late run for him towards a title. He's going to be a real threat. I don't, the matchup with Djokovic, if it comes about, is not a great one because he has to be perfect again, but I think he'll take care of Sverev. Dominic team against Gale, a assumedly fit and healthy Gale Monfils. Yeah, well, this is the Monfils that we hope to see many times over the years. He hasn't dropped a set, uh, looking like he's in exactly the right frame of mind to go far. It was really interesting that before the tournament, Patrick Moratoglu said, if it's not going to be Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic, then who, who could it be? It could be Gael Monfils. And that was a real, really sticking his neck out, I think, But because we've seen Monfils flatter to deceive so many times that we, we sort of expect him to fall at some stage. But team has got himself embroiled in the usual four set battles, <laughs> overextending himself in week one, as he loves to do. But it's still playing great. And you'd imagine that team will come through it, but I don't think it's going to be quick. So Dominic team will face Karen Hashanov or Juan Martin Del Potro, Matt? Well, um, Kashanov was awesome against uh, Martin Kleesen, but he had played two days earlier, 9-7 in the fifth, so I'm, I'm sure fatigue would have been a factor there. I'm going to go with Del Potro. I think Del Potro is shaping up nicely. That 6-4, love demolition of Jordan Thompson was phenomenal after also being tested by Nishioka in five sets. So, I, But I think Delpo has been in the semi-finals here, of course, so I back, I'm backing Delpo, who's fit again, healthy, and when he's healthy... I always think he's good for at least a you know, quarter-final, semi-final of a Grand Slam. I mean, he did have that knee issue in the round before last, which was a little bit worrying. He sort of jarred himself and got his knee taped. He still had tape in the next round. But it's so difficult, even when Del Potro is not quite as mobile as he would like to be, to get him off his forehand, because that forehand's a monstrous shot, and it just wins matches on its own. To put the serve together with it, and he's, he's playing well. His backhand's great. So I think he's sort of, he's, his knee injury is not too bad. He's managing it well. He should have too much for Hashanov. In the bottom half, taking place later today, and Matt on the way down, Simon, to the media restaurant where we're recording this podcast, said he believed that Benoit Pair, very confident in his assessment of Benoit Pair, would just come through Nishikori. Nishikori wouldn't have anything left, and the French would be in the quarterfinals. Has Matt been at the drinks, the beers, or what? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think it's the, the thing that gives Benoit Pair a chance are two things. One, playing at home. A uh, big crowd behind him, and two, the fact that Nishikori has really had to work very, very hard to get here. Uh, came from behind to beat Joe Wilfred Songa in another tough match against a Frenchman at home, and then a really tough, exhausting battle against Laszlo Jerry in the previous round. So, if Nishikori's a bit, a little bit tired, then I think Pair has a chance. Otherwise, the matchup's not good. The backhand of Pair is awesome, but so is Nishikori's. So he's got to go up the line. Nishikori's a better athlete than him, a better competitor, a better player. If he's fit, he'll win. Susan Longland, at the moment, whether you're a spectator or you're a member of the press, you can't get a seat. You cannot get a seat. It's Stan Vavrink against Stefanos Tsitsipas taking place, as we speak, quite far away, actually, from Susan Longland. The first set lasted nearly an hour, went the way of Stan Vavrinka, and Tsitsipas had a set point. Then he double-faulted Tsitsipas' set point down. Currently, it's 5-3 in favour of the Greek player. You have a feeling that could be a long way to go. And by the time that people listen to this, 
we will have a winner. Your winner is? Stan Vavrinka. I think Vavrinka in uh, five sets. There you go. So I, I do think he'll get wow, through. Wow, we've, got a, we've um, got a long day ahead of us. Uh, we have got a long day ahead of us, uh, <laughs> without a doubt. But I do think Vavrinka will uh, will get through to a quarterfinal against Roger Federer, which, uh, well, it's just a tantalising prospect. Vavrinka and Tsitsipas, it's the battle of the backhands, the two one-handers. Stan is definitely very, very close to his best again. He is picking it up. He's been picking it up for months, but having bad draws and playing one good match and one not so good. Tsitsipas has incredible belief you know, drop that first set, but hits back immediately, even in a cauldron and the heat. It's it superb competitor. This match could go forever, but I, I think I give Sitsipas a slight edge because I think Vavrinka hasn't quite got there yet. Although I know that certain people in the Novak Djokovic camp are slightly worried about Vavrinka suddenly emerging back into the picture, uh, even though they're in the other half. You know, they don't want to see him in the final if it's if it gets there. Now, recently, Nick McCarvel spoke to Stefanos Tsitsipas's coach, Patrick Moratoglu, and they started by focusing what a young player needs to keep making improvements on on tour. Tennis has become uh, very physical, uh, and it's always more physical on clay than on any other surface. I think he's the type of player who loves to have a lot of matches uh, to, to play his best tennis, and you can feel that his level has just improved week after week because he's playing a lot of matches and playing matches give him gives him confidence because he's winning a lot and also he finds his game so it's always as you just said it's it's always a balance that you have to find between playing enough but not too much because you don't want to come to the bigger the biggest tournaments being tired and not being able to be at your peak. Is physicality the biggest thing, especially when you look at the ATP right now? I mean, the way that these guys, you know, some of these guys are, are built so big, first off, but the physical game, I was talking with Cameron Norrie this week, and he was a successful college player, but he said physically, the kind of tennis that you have to play week in and week out is next level on the ATP. Yes, I agree with that, and I think that's probably one of the biggest change in the last 10 years. Uh, because tennis has become even more professional than before. So now most of the players have their fitness coach almost all year long. Uh, they had only a coach, now they have the coach plus the conditioning coach. And for quite a lot of them, they also have a physio. So there is so much more attention on tennis, on, sorry, on the physical side than before. I think players are just such better athletes than they, what they used to be. In the past, it was only the top ones that were great athletes, the other ones not so much. Now, it's most of them are. And if you look at how the tall guys move now, that's the biggest improvement. That's what, I mean, usually the guys who were above one, one meter 90, they were struggling on their movement. They could rely on their serve that they were not moving well. Now it's, I mean, if you look at Tsitsipas, if you look at Medvedev, uh, Del Potro also of course I and mean, the way those guys are moving with that with being so tall is incredible it, that, that's a big change for me and they are much better prepared so much better prepared so then yeah so actually that leads me to my next question is at your academy then what are you doing with players say who are developing as juniors that are probably bigger guys and women too that you want them to physically be ready for I mean I mean they've got to be world-class movers so I'm guessing there's a lot of implementation of that earlier in their careers totally I think uh, I think again the physical is one of the main uh, thing you have to focus on especially when you finish I mean of course ideally before the junior or during the juniors but 
at least as soon as you're done with the juniors, you have to focus on that. That's that was my decision with uh, with Stefanos. I, I decided to have him uh, have a, a fitness coach on tour uh, for, if I remember well, more than 20 weeks, plus all the weeks at the academy. So altogether around 30, 35 weeks, uh, which is a lot to focus a lot on that. And I think uh, they did a great job. I, if I look at him, uh, the way his physical has moved from three years ago to now, it's incredible. And if I I'm being more specific about the fitness, I would say this. Goal number one is the prevention because you have to know the body of your player and you have to do something that is completely uh, adapted to his needs in order to limit the risk of injury. And that's the, for me goal number one of the of the the fitness coach. He has to work with the physios in order to do that, but that's what we do at the academy. We, we focus on, we, we we have a perfect picture of each player, what they're strong at, what they're weak at, and where are the dangers in their body. Then we do all the prevention work. Once they're balanced, then we can really push and develop them. And we do those two things that are as important. You can do the development if you're not sure that you've done the first part really well. Yeah, no, that's interesting. To hear. I mean, because you look at a career, say, let's use Roger Federer as an example. He's had so few injuries. I mean, really one big injury in his career. And otherwise, I mean, that's what's allowed him to be so consistent and continue to have confidence. Totally. I think he's, uh, first of all, he's been incredibly well prepared all his career. There is no doubt about that. I think... His team has done an incredible job with him. It's something we don't talk about very much with Roger because there haven't been those issues with him. I mean, his, the physicality and the work they do off the court is massive. Totally, and, and is, is probably one of the best, if not the best, uh, prepared athlete of all in tennis. Uh, I think Novak is doing an incredible job too. His two guys uh, have barely been injured. Novak had one uh, surgery with his elbow not so long ago. But that's the only thing. He's always fit. He's never injured. You feel that he's very very well balanced, and so as uh, Roger. And the second thing we have to say about Roger is also that he's so loose. The way he plays, the way he moves. With, I mean, I think he makes he makes much less efforts than than most of the guys because he's so loose and so easy. And I think he, pre he it's a great prevention also for his body. <laughs> What, yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, the way that they play, we've seen that a lot with Andy Murray. Or it's been, we've talked a lot about and he, that. And he has, sorry, and he has a perfect body for tennis. He's, Roger. Uh, yeah, he's very athletic, but he's very light also. Mm. And I think it's very important for our sport uh, because otherwise every time you, you run, you change direction, you jump. I mean, it's tough for the joints. And uh, definitely the less weight, the better. And if you look at Roger and Novak on the, on the men's side, I think that the... The, the best two ideal bodies, I mean, there are others, huh? of course. I think Dimitrov has a great body also for tennis, for example. But that, that's the ideal body for me for tennis. What would you say is the most important thing if you look at, if we stay on that theme of physicality? I mean, I think of Andy so fast, right? Andy Murray so fast. Novak Djokovic is so flexible. You're talking about Roger Federer being so light. Rafael Nadal is so strong. Uh, I'm guessing you want the perfect package, but what do you want a tennis player to highlight physically okay the question is what do you want to see on the court you want to see players who are able to cover the court very well 
and it's about a lot about being able to change direction very fast and to accelerate. And for that, for sure, the less weight, the easier it is. And then the less also, uh, the less stress you put on your body. And then you have to be able to see early and move forward, move up to the balls very fast also. So it's a lot about uh, being balanced every time when you move, you know, having a perfect balance. And I always refer to Roger, because if you look at all the players on grass, most of them fall on a regular base on grass. He never falls. I don't remember him falling one time in 20 years on grass because his, his head is always in the, in the middle of his hips. He's perfectly balanced every time. He's never out of balance. So there is a lot of technique in that. There is a lot of physicality. There is, uh, you have to be, if, if you're right, you have to be able to be flexible, uh, fast, see early you know it's it's a lot of components that and you did all of them if you have if you have heavy muscles it's more difficult so then you need a lot of strength like rafa but it's very stressful for your joints and you know you're suffering more and you get more injured and if you look at rafa and roger all their career what i'm saying makes sense you mentioned the grass there the, you know that part of the season obviously is so quick right you go from clay to grass and we oftentimes talk about the tennis and how quick the tennis and the aspect of how the ball flies changes but you're also asking that change of the body and how you move what are the challenges there for the players yeah i think one of the biggest challenges to move on grass um, first of all it's a, it's a surface that most of the players don't know well because they spend they have a they spend very little time with grass every year uh, and they were not born on grass for 90 percent of them it's hard to find it's hard to find, and uh, they, they, they basically three play, uh, I'd say, four or five weeks maximum per year on grass, and it's the surface that is the most extreme compared to clay, and you have to switch from clay to grass. On clay, you can be higher on your legs. On grass, you have to be very low. On clay, you slide. On grass, you need a lot of small steps. Uh, I mean, everything's different, and the movement is completely different, so that's a big challenge to be able to switch from clay to grass in the way you're going to move. And tennis is so much about moving, uh, being on time on the ball, taking, being earlier than the opponent on, on, the, on the ball, being able to reach balls. Uh, so that, that, that's, for me, that's the, the biggest uh, challenge. Is, is movement, is footwork the, the one most important thing? And to, I mean, obviously there are other aspects, but I feel like whenever I talk to a teaching pro or someone um, at the basic level, or even when I play tennis sometimes, which isn't very often or very well, it's all about your footwork. I mean, it's definitely not all about it, but it's also definitely one of the, one of the most difficult things to uh, achieve in our sport. And, uh, and you know, I always say that, I mean, if, if you look at the players, uh, they, I mean, any player who's 300 in the world play against the top 10. If they play down the middle, you don't, you barely see a difference. Make them move. There is a huge difference. Side to side. Yeah. Yeah. And and some players are great playing at that rhythm. You increase a bit the rhythm. They're not as good. Then then you increase a little bit more. They they start to be really bad. So, it's. Uh, I mean, the top players, they're able to play fast and control everything playing faster than any other player. So basically, yes, it's a lot about the movement.
We started this whole physical or, or movement conversation with Cesar Pass, and I actually want to go back to him. You've obviously worked with him for a few years, his dad as well. Um, he has, he's continued to surprise me and maybe others in tennis. I don't know if it surprised you with his um, hunger. He was very disappointed that he lost that final in Madrid. He wanted to win that tournament. He was similar in Toronto last year when he made the final as well. How do coaches, how do you at your academy, and I think you know, maybe this would loop in guys like Alexi Poprin, who you also work with, um, how do you go about trying to instill that championship mentality, and I should not leave out Serena Williams, the, the most championing of them all, um, Roger would go in there too. Uh, how do you instill that in players, or, or is it just natural? I think uh, the only thing we can do is improve things, but uh, definitely what players have naturally will always be stronger than anything you can try to teach. And I think this mentality of a champion is something that Stefanos has. He has it. He's, uh, first of all, he's very passionate about what he's doing. He's a guy who's doing everything 100%. Uh, and second, is he wants it all. And, and that's what champions are. Um, you, can, you mentioned, and I'm happy you say that, because I think that's one, one of his biggest qualities, this mentality. Uh, and if you would ask me what is his two biggest qualities, I would say, first, he's an incredible competitor. And second, he's incredibly ambitious and he's working hard to achieve his dreams, which is something that is not so common. To, go, I mean, to do it that way, to expect so much from yourself, it's, I, don't, I don't see many people being able to do that. Definitely Serena, for sure. Um, but it's something really big that he has there. And i give you another example. When he lost in the semi-final of uh, the Australian Open this year, I just, uh, yeah, so he was just beating Roger in quarters, reached the semis. First time he's in the semis of a Grand Slam and he loses to Rafa. I, I spoke to him the day after, he was destroyed. Like 90, I think 90, percent of the guys would have been so happy to reach the semis of a Grand Slam and, and beat Roger Federer in quarters, he was destroyed. Because semi-final was not enough for him. Not that he expects to win, of course he does, but but when you reach a semi, he doesn't expect to, to lose. He, he wants to win that match. And the dis disappointment is incredibly big and it shows a, a lot how big his hunger is. So that's his big, two biggest qualities. And I remember I liked him the first day because I saw him on, on, on internet play and I saw an incredible competitor. It was at a tournament, I saw a few, a few rallies and I thought, wow, this guy is an incredible competitor. And that's what it, this sport is about, competing and wanting more than the other ones. And I think he has those two things. So we can improve that always, but when, when the players have this naturally, it's always stronger than anything we can teach. Are you surprised at what we've seen from Cesar Pass the last 11 months, 12 months? I mean, uh, to be completely honest, yes and no. I'm surprised because I, would, I didn't expect it to go so fast. Because I think he's, he's going incredibly fast. But I expected him to be top 10 and more and win Grand Slams. Uh, since I met him uh, when he was 16, I saw him on the internet. Not on internet, of you, course. You but found him on YouTube, right? Yeah, I found him on YouTube, yeah, totally. And then he came to my academy, I spent time with him, and then I thought, wow, this guy is really special. He has this potential, 
and if things are done right, he can achieve his potential. And if he does, then he can win Grand Slams. That's what I always thought. So I'm not surprised that he is where he is now. I just I'm impressed that he's been able to do that so fast. But again, it shows an incredible character, and I'm really impressed by his character. Nick McCarville there speaking with Patrick Moratogli. Being in the French capital, being at Roland Garros, we must say a word about some of the French players. We talked a little bit about Benoit Paire and, and Guillaume Monfils, but Antoine Wong, what a run that young man went on. He came undone in the end against Guillaume Monfils, and I actually saw him, Wong, this morning doing an interview with French Eurosport, and they were sort of making the small talk before the interview starts, and, and how are you and what are you up to? He said, oh, I, I've actually got a physics test tomorrow, and, th and it makes you, th this is real life for these young guys making their way on tour. It's not purely about tennis at this stage. No, they're not quite Roger Federer who can sort of walk on water around this place. But <laughs> yeah, for someone like Antoine Huang, it's, this is a life-changing experience. Even though he goes back to his physics test, he still has to, he, he's moving up the rankings as a result of what he's done here. He will suddenly be into Grand Slam main draws sooner rather than later. He'll be getting a taste for this kind of thing. He sees what's happening amongst his peers and the better players around. And he's got a game. He's got some game too. He's got a lovely backhand. He's got some aggression. I think he just ran out of steam and energy by the time he got through. Uh, against Monfils, who you know, he did a good job of not celebrating too much and not absolutely destroying him, but just sort of easing through. But I, it's great to see a young player with a with a with a mind and with a with a with some intelligence getting through, and hopefully he goes a long way. You mentioned at the top your moment of the first week was probably uh, Nicola Mahu's son running on. He came through two rounds, Mahu. He came through against Marco Cecchinato and then Philip Cole Schreiber. They are two huge scalps, and finally coming undone. Leo Meyer. Yeah, um, the win over Chicanato, you know, he was two sets to love down in that match, coming back against the guy who made the semi-finals here last year, the 16th seed. It was the match on the court, um, Simone Mathieu, the, the, the new court here uh, in Paris at Roland Garros, and it was, it was just an incredible moment when he came, when, he, when his son came on, he was in tears, it was just, just magical, and then to see him do it again in the next round, to get through in straight sets over Cole Schreiber, and really push Leo Meyer in that third round. I mean, I think there were a lot of people, you know, sentimentally were certainly hoping the two 37-year-olds would meet, would meet, and it didn't quite eventuate. But yeah, great moment. That was my moment of the week, and it came right at the very start of the tournament, um, that first-round match over Chicanato. So, but so many other great moments as well. One more Frenchman I'd like to mention at this stage is Corentin Mute because he had a w couple of wins again for him. He came unstuck against Juan Ignacio Londero, but he beat Guido Pella. Pella has been ripping it up on the clay in 2019. For Samute, he's a young guy, again, the pressures of dealing with playing at your home slam. For him to get that win, it continues on with his development. Oh, it certainly does. And against Londero, boy, that was a cracking match too. I had the privilege of commentating part of that. Um, it was out on, I think, court 14. It was just packed. There was no space for anybody to get a glimpse of the court anywhere near it. It was, it was a brilliant atmosphere and a lot of controversy in the match. There were some lying calls that were, you know, there was a lot of flair between the two of them. But Mute, certainly, uh, for a guy who's not a big guy, certainly has some heavy ground strokes, and, uh, and he's certainly another young player to, to watch. He certainly is, and he's progressing nicely, and he's nestling just outside the current race to Milan standings. For two years, the next-gen ATP finals have showcased eight of the world's best players, aged 21 and under, in a blockbuster season finale in Milan. Five months into 2019, and the contenders for this year's competition have been making their mark. As the French Open gets underway, these are the next-gen stars leading the ATP race to Milan. Sitsi Pass 
gets his first victory over Rafael Nadal. Play aggressive, go for it, making as many points as possible. A win he will never forget. Passing winner from Augier Aliassi, backhand cross court. And it is the young Canadian, what a win. Yeah, I believe in myself, but uh, I'll have to start over again and you know work hard to to get through these tough matches. Another mature performance. This guy is the real deal. Forehand winner from Shapovalov. What a victory for the teenager from Canada. It's been a great ride so far, but I hope to, to keep improving, keep playing my game. A breathtaking display from Denis Shapovalov. Tiafo improvising from the service line. That's brilliant tennis. It's been a great year so far. After Australia, went cold for a bit, and obviously got it back in Miami. Now he's want to have more consistent week rather than going cold, cold and big. Out of this world. 20-year-old Kasper Ruud. That's too good. Of course, it's really fun to do well. Felt like really steady throughout many tournaments and many weeks in a row. So, of course, I'm really happy. Backhand volley from Dimitro. He's going to play another one here. Drop volley. Oh, yes, please. That is sublime. I'm proud of my efforts. This whole year has been insane. Uh, I'm enjoying every second of it and happy to be where I am. Sweep the forehand winner and raise the arms in July. Miramir Kekmanovic is through. It's a nice experience to be part of the next gen. One of the goals is to make Milan this year. You know, I hope I can play good and eventually get there. Oh, yes. A host of talent is primed just outside the automatic qualifying places, hoping to be one of the seven players and one wild card to make up the final eight. A spectacular setting and innovative format awaits. The ATP race to Milan is on. Your race to Milan standings at the moment, and don't forget ATP Tennis Radio will have every day of the next-gen finals in Milan. Top is Stefano Sitzbach, second is Felix Ogielia Seam, third is Denis Shapovalov, fourth is Francis Tiafo, five is Kasper Ruud, six is Alex de Menor, seven is Miamir Kekmanovic, and then we have the Italian wildcard coming in at eighth. What a lineup, Simon Cambers. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? And we've had these for a few for a few years now. We've seen, you know, the, the standard of the next-gen players really increasing. And they're all doing well. And these are top players already in their own right. But they, they get the chance to shine through the race to Milan, through the next-gen finals. Um, it's really good. It seems like it's really good for their development because they get a little bit more attention on them and they get used to dealing with that attention. So when they get to the big stages of tournaments, they're used to it. So, great to see. Number five in the current standings after putting a good performance against Roger Federer is Kasper Rudin. ATP Uncovered caught up with a Norwegian and his father, Christian, recently. It's been 23 years since a Norwegian has cracked the top 50 in the ATP rankings. But 20-year-old Kasper Rud is eager to change that. Kasper's father, Christian, reached 39 in the ATP rankings back in 1995 and remains the highest-ranked Norwegian player of all time. So clearly tennis runs in the blood of the Rud family. He had the racket in his hand since he was one year old or something. He has some fun picture where the, the bucket of balls is a lot bigger than him. 
I would say when he was like 10, 11, that he started to say to me that I want to play tennis. After that, we kind of made a plan for, okay, maybe you're going to be a professional and let's let's do it more serious. In the beginning, when we when I was 12, 13, 14, I didn't play too much, but there's a circuit called Tennis Europe for 14 years old, and that's where he started traveling with me. And then when I was 16, the Spanish coach came in. For him being 16, 17 years old, to have his dad like one meter behind him the whole day, I think it's maybe not uh, that good. So that's why we, we brought in the coach, which did most of the traveling, and he came with his ideas and thoughts. And then uh, I think also now with the system we have that he's also at the Nadal Academy getting inspiration and coaching from, the, from you know some of the best coaches in the world. He's not the main coach, but dad Christian is never far away. We always try to have a phone call before I play a match. I would of course analyze my opponent, but he would also maybe see things that I didn't see or giving me motivation and um, small hints and tips every now and then is great. Yeah, I'm just you know trying to help him with uh, moving up in the rankings and play from my experience and tell him you know, you know which tournaments to play and try to develop his game also. And I think he's in a good position, he has a good team around him and establish himself as an ATP player. I think that's uh, the next goal. Kasper has been making major strides towards that goal. He reached the top 100 of the ATP rankings for the first time in March and followed that with his first ATP Tour final in Houston in April. But I've been ranked from 110 to 140 for about two years now and you're just pushing, pushing, pushing to get to that top 100. So now it's, I've reached the top 100, of course, I have some weeks not to relax, but kind of try to recharge and go for more. You have to be smart and keep the body healthy and to keep the motivation and the hunger to train hard and, and want to play tournaments and matches. And that's a little bit easier now when you have the top 100 ranking, you know maybe you're in the main draw of French Open and things like this. Not your biggest goal in your career, hopefully, like you want to get uh, even better than top 100 uh, eventually in, in, your, in your career, but it's uh, one of the big first goals, I think, for a young player and you know, it just feels really good to finally get there. And his strong start to 2019 has put Casper in the hunt for a place at the next-gen ATP Finals this November. I think we're all good friends to, among the next-gen players and of course we're competitors but we're also getting along so uh, it's a really big event. It has been going on for two years now. I've been watching both years. I mean not every match but a little bit here and there and I think it's a fun concept and um, a great chance for uh, new young players to, to show their, uh, their level and compete against each other. It's a great uh, atmosphere and a, and a fun event it looks like, so I would really, really enjoy playing there, I think. We, we've been doing many things right and I think that uh, he's in a good place right now and I think, he, I think he's hungry for more and we just have to keep on going, I think. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Okay, gentlemen, some final thoughts. So a reminder, it is Sunday afternoon, it's four o'clock, but pick the match up for me you're most looking forward to. It might be something that's taking place later today. It might be a match that's already on court or might be one to come. Well, for me, it was the Vavrinka Tsitsipas uh, was the one I was most looking forward to because that's just an incredible battle between the two. Matt, and I'd love to see another Federer Nadal semi-final. Um, I just think it would be incredible if we got to that stage. More so the Federer side to, by getting to that semi-final. He hasn't played here for four years, hasn't played much on clay, but playing as well as he ever has at this tournament at the grand young age of 37, <laughs> nearly 38. So yeah, Federer Nadal semi and the new Federer 
Federer too, who's who's gone well against Nadal in their recent head-to-heads, uh, recent matches. You know, with the variety which he would have to, you know, try, which I don't think he tried enough against um, Nadal in the early days of their um, rivalry back in the mid to late. 2005 to 10 period so yeah I just think it would be intriguing Gentlemen it's so busy it's been a busy week so far into week two thank you very much for your company A pleasure Thank you That's it from this week be sure to join us on next weekend's podcast as we look back on all the action at Roland Garros and in the meantime you can listen to ball by ball commentary of the championships Roland Garros on ATP Tennis Radio courtesy of Radio Roland Garros we are the official tournament radio channel here simply click on the listen button at the top of the ATP to a homepage or you can ask your smart speaker to play ATP Tennis Radio. Or, if that's not enough ways, you can find us through TuneIn. Radio Roland Garros will broadcast commentary throughout the day from first ball to last. Enjoy the tennis if you're here. Protect yourself from the heat. And we'll be back with you in a week's time. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. review.